Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Hey, good evening. Welcome to Leadership Night at Summit Church. I want to welcome those of you guys in the room. I also want to welcome all of you that are watching online. I appreciate you joining us, no matter where you may be or how you may be joining us. Uh, appreciate it, and I hope uh, the next hour we have together is helpful for you, and I hope it proves fruitful uh, in terms of your leadership and your ability to uh, influence others. So thanks for joining us so much. My name is Mel Massengill. I'm one of the pastors here at Summit Church, and uh, if you're new to Leadership Night, um, we're typically what we do is we'll spend about 20, 25 minutes just unpacking some leadership principles, and then we will uh, spend the rest of our time just doing Q&A, talking amongst ourselves here in the room. And those that are online, you can submit some questions as well, and we'll do our best to get to those and uh, just walk through this. So we'll spend about 60 minutes together, and, uh, and hopefully at the end of that, we prove to be um, better leaders. There's something that you might be able to apply to, uh, to your leadership and to your position, whatever it might be, whether you lead a department or a company or a family or whatever it is, uh, we want you to be a better leader. Uh, so let me pray over our time together before we get going and uh, we'll get started. Lord, thanks so much for bringing us together this evening. I pray your blessing on our time. I pray that it would be fruitful. Lord, I pray that we would be better leaders uh, because of what we learn. That Lord, we understand that these principles are biblical principles and I pray that they would bear fruit in our work, in our families, in our communities. And I pray that we would help make the world that you have planted us in better because of this. So Lord, have your way among us in Jesus' name, amen. One piece of housekeeping I do wanna tell you, this Saturday morning at 10 a.m., uh, one of my personal coaches, Gerald Brooks, is gonna be with us. He leads a fantastic church in Plano, Texas called uh, Grace Church, um, and he is... Um, he, he's a leadership guru, legitimately. Uh, he has a leadership podcast called the Gerald Brooks Leadership Podcast, and he will take biblical principles, unpack those, and apply them to leadership. And so I want to encourage you, if, if you like leadership podcasts, check out the Gerald Brooks Leadership Podcast. And uh, I think a new one just dropped today. And, uh, and join us this, this Saturday. So Saturday morning, 10 a.m., up in our youth auditorium. You can come in these east doors and uh, up to the youth auditorium. We're just gonna hang out together uh, from 10 to noon. Uh, he's just gonna share two or three different um, lessons with us. And uh, we'll have some snacks and different things. And so you guys are invited. Really, it's for anybody who wants to grow their leadership. Um, so feel free, join us on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. for that. Um, tonight, we're gonna jump into this. Um, one of the ideas I've been working on when it comes to to leadership night is, um, is this idea of how, how do you lead through opposition? Um, because every leader is going to experience opposition. No matter what you're leading, no matter how big or small, you're gonna have opposition. Um, it might be something as simple as in your family, you want to go to the Thai restaurant for dinner, but you've got kids who don't like Thai. How do you navigate opposition and leadership? Uh, or it might be something big, like in your organization, in your company, you're trying to, to lead uh, in a new direction. You're trying to shift gears and do something new. Um, there's going to be opposition. So I didn't want to just talk through how do we navigate opposition. I want to talk a little bit as well about uh, what that opposition is, who it's from, and what that might look like. And so um, you probably have seen this at some point or another. Uh, this, is, uh, this was developed by Everett Rogers. He was a sociologist, um, um, an author, a, a speaker, and he developed this, and it's been utilized in a number of different ways. Um, Michael mentioned that uh, he had seen Simon Sinek uh, use this before as well. And if you know who he is, start with why, Leaders Eat Last, a couple of great books he's written. But this is uh, the diffusion of innovation model. And it's used in lots of different applications, lots of different places. But this is, I think, a good place for us to start when, it, when we talk about opposition and leadership. And so what this is, is uh, it's a, a graph based on his research uh, when it comes to change, who accepts it and how quickly and things like that. And so what, what he posits is, or postulates is, the first two and a half percent are innovators, two and a half percent. These are the people that they're gonna wait in line for the new iPhone. 
Um, they don't care what the features are. They're gonna be there to get the new iPhone. They're the people that wanna see the movie on opening night. They might even dress up as the character. They are the first two and a half percent. They are typically gonna be risk takers. They're typically gonna be people who are, um, from, a, from a, just a clinical perspective, they tend to be people that are a little more educated and a little wealthier. The first two and a half percent. They don't mind taking risks. They will do it and they will do it often. Um, then you've got the early adopters and the early adopters weigh in at about 13 and a half percent. So this group here, 13 and a half percent. These are the people that they are friends with, these people. Uh, they're friends with the innovators, but they're not gonna be the first ones that are gonna go buy the iPhone. They're gonna let their buddies buy the iPhone and then they're gonna play with it in the office. They're gonna take a look at it. And these are gonna be the people that'll buy it uh, five months in, four months in, after the hubbub have died down. These are the people that might go see the new Marvel movie, but they're not seeing it on opening night. They're gonna wait three or four weeks for the crowds to die down a little bit, but they still wanna see it before their friends. Um, these are people that are a little more risk averse than the, the innovators, but they're still, um, they're still risk takers. Then you have the early majority. Are you so impressed by my, by my artistic work as well. I mean, I worked pretty hard on this actually. Early majority, this represents about uh, 34.5%. Good thing we have the half in there. And these are people, and this is probably, and especially when it comes to technology where I fall, um, I'm going to fall in this area. My wife is an early adopter. She wants the newest gadget, Gizmo, as soon as possible. Sometimes she drives our staff crazy because she's like, oh my gosh, we've got this new program and it's great. And she loves it, but she does that because she's an early adopter. and She's watching right now. And honey, I'm so sorry if you're mad at me for saying that. I apologize. She's an early adopter. I tend to fall in here somewhere. Um, I'm the early majority, I'm gonna be out before a lot of people, but I'm gonna wait and see. Uh, when it comes to a lot of technology, I'm gonna be a little more risk averse. Um, I, I'm, I'm gonna change at a slower pace on a lot of things. Um, then you have the late majority. This is about 34%, we'll call it 34. Uh, this is the late majority here. These are the people, again, they're friends with the early majority, but they're the ones that are a little skeptical about the change. I don't know about this internet thing. We'll see if it sticks around. Uh, we'll wait and see. Um, they don't accept new ideas very easily. Um, and then the last one, and this is his term, not mine, is the laggards. And the laggards come in at about 16%. Um, 16%. The laggards are the people that they don't want to change. They, they want their flip phone forever. They want, um, they don't want Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. They want still MySpace or Zanga. Does anybody remember Zanga? I was hoping CJ, you might remember. Oh, okay. Well, never mind. Uh, they want the old stuff. They want that back. Um, laggards are hard people to lead. They're resistant to change. They hold tightly to the things that they know traditionally. Um, and now here's the thing. When we talk about leading, uh, leading through um, opposition, these people here are gonna be easier to lead through change than these people here. Um, these people, as long as you have a, a good reason why, they're gonna jump on board relatively easily. These people especially. I, I was telling Michael about this beforehand. Even as a pastor here in our church, um, if I'm leading through, um, like when we did our building project back in 2015 and we built on our kids and youth wing back here, um, I approached these people on this end of the spectrum differently than these people on this end of the spectrum. Typically, those people on that end of the spectrum need less information. Um, I can go to them with a one-sheet bullet points. Here's what's going on. Here's why we need to do this. And they're gonna look at that and be like, yep, makes sense, let's go. These people on this end, I can give them a 10-page, 12-font, single-space, double-sided, Here's all the things going on. Here's all the reasons why. And they might still be skeptical of why we would need to make the change. Um, but 
both of these groups of people on either end of the spectrum are important if I want to affect change the way we want to in our organization and yours as well. So really what we're talking about when we talk about leading through opposition is how do we deal with this group? How do we approach people and lead people who don't want to change? And in fact, they don't want to change so much, sometimes they will be confrontational, and sometimes they're gonna be hateful. Um, what do we do about that? Because really, when we talk about opposition, there's passive and aggressive um, or active opposition. The passive opposition is gonna be the people you know in your departments, in your um, businesses, uh, in your companies, that they don't like the decisions, but they're not gonna cause a stink about it. Well, I don't like it. I think it's dumb. Why would we do that? But that's fine. And then you've got active opposition, and those people are the ones that are having meetings after the meetings. So after the meeting, and you talk about it, and they're like, okay, everybody go, yeah, no questions, no, no questions. They will go out after the meeting and be like, I can't believe they're actually doing that. Why didn't you say anything in the meeting? Well, it's none of their business, and I don't know why we, like, that's what's going on. That's active opposition. They're the people that might be sending anonymous emails uh, that, that they get fired up over, we shouldn't be changing organization this way, whatever it might be. Um, Bobby Kennedy said one time, he said about 20% of people are against any change. And it's funny because when you look at this, this is about 16%. And he's not far off according to uh, the diffusion of innovation model. Um, so really, I just have some principles that I think apply uh, to leading change, especially when we're leading change in opposition with this group here. Uh, the first thing I would say is this, include as many people as you can in the change, in the decision-making process. And this is, this is uh, hard for me to do because I am, I am a leader that I go, I, I see a decision, let's go do it, let's go. Like fire from the hip, it'll be fine, we'll figure it out. Um, and so I wanna get wisdom, but once, the, the second I think I've got it, we're going. Um, and that is problematic at times because when I've tried to lead change in our organization, there are people on this end of the spectrum who just feel like I'm a bully. That they feel like I don't care about their perspective. And so what I have to do is actively seek out people and talk to them, uh, not for the sake of buttering them up, but to legitimately include them in the, pro in the process. Um, one of the things I've found is that people will disparage leadership if they have no ownership of the decision. So if a decision is made and they don't have any ownership in it, they don't have any buy-in, they don't have any skin in the game, then it's easy for them to, to trash the decisions that are made. But if you can include people in the decision, even if you don't make the decision they want, if you can hear them and talk to them, as we'll see in just a second, it makes a big difference on how they approach that. Again, they might not agree with it still, but the level of opposition will be different. Um, people don't resist change, they resist being changed. Um, so in the context of our church, um, I had somebody, a family left our church when we changed the configuration of our auditorium one time. And it doesn't seem like that big a deal. We just changed where the rows were and I literally had a family leave because they said, you took our seat out. And I was like, no, I didn't. It's still there. It's just different than it was. And... They weren't angry, but they just weren't coming back because their seat was gone. Um, they weren't resistant to change. They didn't care that I changed the auditorium. They changed that I, care that I changed their seat. Does that make sense? They didn't want to be changed. Um, so anytime you institute a change in your organization, in your department, whatever it is, uh, the people that you're talking to about that change, they're going, the first thing they're going to ask themselves is, how does this affect me? How does this affect me? How, how is this gonna impact my leadership, uh, my say in the organization, my access to key leaders? Am I still gonna have a seat at the table? Like these are the things they're asking themselves. And if we wanna go even further than that, um, I, this is one of the things I think parents in blended families don't understand, uh, that their kids, whenever you say, hey, I've got this new boyfriend or girlfriend and it's not your dad, you know, they're divorced and they've got, hey, I've got this new, that's their first response is, how is this gonna change my relationship with mom or dad? Or how is this gonna impact? They're asking, how is this gonna affect me? And that's what people in your, in your organizations are doing as well. They're asking, how is this going to impact me? And so one of the most important things we can do as leaders to... Um, 
to stop opposition before we get there is to answer those kind of questions, to have those kind of conversations by bringing people in and having those talks. Because I know I can include those people right there and they're gonna be like, pedal the metal, let's go. But I'm gonna experience a lot of opposition from this end if that's all that I include. So it's important for me to include as many people as I can in the decision. And the reason I said it that way is because you can't include everybody. Um, you, you can't include everybody in your organization in every decision or you will grind to a halt. So figure out what keeps us nimble, what, how can we still make decisions and, and then figure out what the number is for people in the room and make sure you're getting some different voices in the room. Um, people love change when it's their idea. Uh, I, I've, I've, I like change. I, I would say that um, I get excited about change until it's somebody else's idea, then I'm like, whoa, 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 I don't know about that. And I realized pretty quickly how much I actually am resistant to change and how I'm a little bit narcissistic when it comes to, like, I like my changes, but I don't like your changes. Um, and so if we can help people see that this change is beneficial for them and it is partly their change, it helps them buy in. Um, so let me pause there for a second. Uh, with this first principle, in, include as many people as you can. Are there any thoughts or questions or feedback um, from, from the group, thoughts that you have, um, maybe, maybe situations where you've seen that play out in your organization one way or the other, maybe you didn't and it backfired and maybe you did and it worked well. Yeah, Christy. I'm just wondering, like, would it be a bad thing to target staff that's in that first half, like that you want to hire people that are always in the... No, not necessarily, but I, I mean, and, and when it comes to staff, um, you're going to have people that move at times from place to place. Uh, hopefully, you don't have anybody in this end, but you're going to have people that are going to move all through the, this area at times. But I, typically, I want people who are going to be all in, who are going to be high energy, but the reality is that's not everybody in your organization. And for you, yeah. your organization looks different than that too because you don't always have control over who's right. in and out. Right. Um, and so there's lots of context that it's like, hey, whether we like it or not, we got people like this on our, that, that we're trying to lead or drag along. Yeah. So yeah, I think when it comes to leadership, it's good to have as many people down there as you can. Um, but every situation is different too. Okay. That's good. I guess back to the involving as many people as you can. I've just had my experience with that has been that it's very painful it is <laughs> like the, i worked at a law firm where like eight of us had to like sit down and discuss every blessed thing that yeah. happened and it, nothing ever got done absolutely we just never did anything because we could never get anywhere on anything so I mean, is the value in maybe I, I do agree with keeping people informed. I think one of the most upsetting things, what I've experienced in being um, an associate attorney or being on staff somewhere, is being like completely left in the dark about anything that's going on within an organization that mm -hmm. I work for. I think it's offensive and likely going to cause pushback once you unveil like, mm -hmm. what the plan is. But are you suggest? I mean. So is there a balance between yeah. maybe keeping people aware of the change or the uh -huh. discussions about change versus actually having everybody engage in the discussion? Yeah, absolutely. So here's, and, and I kind of reference this, but here's the line for me. Um, I want as many people as can be involved and still allow us to make decisions quickly and efficiently. The second we cross that threshold um, where now we become less efficient, it doesn't make sense for us to... Like when we start slowing down because we're adding more voices, that's when it's like, no, this doesn't make sense for us anymore. Um, and so some of that is about communication. Some of it is about decision making. So some people, they're not decision makers, but you need to communicate some things to them. Um, and so one of the mistakes we make is by going, hey, here's a person who has uh, a high level of, um, of buy-in in our organization. They've been around a long time, so they need to be in the room. Well, maybe not. Maybe they just need to be communicated to, hey, here's what we're doing. We want to let you know. We're so grateful for your contributions to the organization through the years, but you don't want them in the room making decisions. So I think, does that make sense at all? So I think, yeah, you've got to keep, keep uh, aware of what's best for your organization first and foremost, because um, then it, it can create more problems than it's worth. That's a good question. When you are um, trying to involve as many people as you can in on a decision, 
and maybe you're involving them at different levels, along what dimensions do you organize your need-to-know basis? Uh, you make it sound like, for me, it's a lot more organized than it is. <laughs> uh, I think for me, it's kind of a gut feeling. Um, and, you know, anytime we're instituting big changes, I will probably go to my key stakeholders first. I'll go to the people who have, you know, like our staff, our board is going to be involved in some of those, uh, most of those directional decisions. But like people that aren't on the board, but maybe used to be, where I'm going to go have coffee with them and go, hey, I wanted to let you know. Tell me what you think about that. You know, do you have any thoughts? Um, because I want them to feel like they've got buy-in on that. And so I'm not going to take everybody in our church to coffee and talk through that, but there's a level that I would go, yeah, they definitely need to. Now nah, it's going to, they can find out with everybody else in the church. But a lot of times with our big things, what we try to do is have about half of our church know before we make a public announcement, if that makes sense. So again, I think every organization is different depending on who you're dealing with and what you're doing. Good question. Anybody else have question or feedback, thoughts about that, including people in that process? Okay. Number two would be ask good questions. And don't just ask questions, ask good questions. So when you get those people in the room, when you get the, the laggards and the late minor, majority in the room, you, you ask good questions. Um, I, I worked at an organization for about a, uh, yeah, about two, two years where I worked as a, a headhunter, um, just a, a recruiter. I was a corporate recruiter. So I got, I got paid based on who I placed with companies. Um, and one of the things that our company would tell us is sell problems, not solutions. And let me explain, because um, if I called a company, if I called an HR manager and said, hey, um, are you hiring? They might say yes. But then if I said, hey, can, do you need help finding the right people? They're going to say no, because they go, I don't have a problem finding people. Um, so what I have to do is sell the problem, not the solution, because I'm offering a solution to a problem they don't have, because I'm asking do you need help finding people? No, we're finding people. So typically what I would do is I would ask them, I would, I would say, hey, you know what? If you don't buy anything, if we don't place anybody, that's great. I just wanna build a relationship with you. I would love to hear your story. Tell me about, tell me about your business. Tell me about Blackman Mooring Steamatic. Tell me about this, uh, this CNC machine shop, whatever it is. Tell me your story. I just wanna hear what you guys are doing and what you're up to. And people like telling stories. And so uh, a lot of times I would get a hiring manager, or maybe the owner of the company, and they would just start telling me a story. And inevitably during the story, a good story always has a hero and a good story always has conflict. And when you get to that conflict, that's when it's easy to go, oh, there's the problem. They don't, might not even know it's the problem, but there's the problem. Um, and sometimes it would be something like, yeah, we hire people all the time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hiring, you know, about a, one CNC machinist a month. Wow. How come you have so many CNC machinists? Well, uh, we just can't keep them. They just, you know, they'll stick around a month, month and a half. And, and all of a sudden you go, well, there's your problem. They don't even realize I was trying to sell to something that wasn't their problem. I was offering an answer for a question they weren't asking. So what I had to do is go, oh, well, what, what might that look like? if you stopped having turnover with your CNC machinists? Like, how would that change your company if you didn't have turnover like that? So now I'm asking good questions about a problem that they actually have. So a lot of times when you're leading change in your organization, we're answering, we're answering questions that the people in our organization aren't asking. These people aren't asking, um, how is this gonna help us take more risks? They're asking, how is this gonna change my position? How is this gonna change what I'm doing? How is this gonna make me uncomfortable? And if we're answering that question, that's the wrong question. What we need to be identifying is the problem. Here's what the problem is with staying with where we're at right now. And it's helpful if you can ask the right questions to help them see that. Um, so asking the right questions is huge. Asking good questions is really, really, really important to help you get to the root because if you are just selling a solution that people on this end of the spectrum aren't buying, they're still gonna be unhappy whenever you institute the change. But if, if you can help them see, here's the problems, here's why we can't keep doing this, here's how it benefits you, then that makes it better. And it's even better if you're asking the questions that they're responding to. Um, when we 
built this building, um, one of the things we had to do is pretty easy. Right after I came to Summit, uh, we were out of kids space immediately. We had no more kids room. And so we were topped out and it made it pretty easy to go, guys, look at the numbers. You know, I know you, we can't really afford to build right now, but we can't afford not to build right now. You know, and so we talked through, here's the problem. And if we want to get to where we want to get, this is what we're gonna have to do. And do we wanna reach more families? Well, yeah, we wanna reach more families. Okay, well, what do you think we need to do then? How would we go about doing that? If, if doing what we're doing right now is not the solution to help us reach more families, what do we need to do to reach more families? We probably need to build kid space. Yeah, we probably need to build kid space. And that's what we ended up doing. But it came back to asking the right questions that got us to the right response. So some of the questions you might ask are things like, um, hey, tell me your thoughts about, what do you, what do you think about this? Um, what do you think it would take for us to accomplish this? Um, Hey, if this solution that we're working on doesn't fix the problem, what do you think we should do next? Because then you're inviting them to be part of the solution, not just complain about the process. Um, the great thing is questions, the right questions will help you develop a dialogue about solutions and it distracts people from just being cranky and defending the past. Um, this is one of the things I've realized too. Most people that are opponents to the change that you'd like to institute or you feel like you're supposed to institute, they don't have a clearly articulated uh, picture of their preferred future. They don't know what they really want. They just know that they don't want that. They want this right now. Um, and so part of, of asking the right questions is helping them discover that there might be something better than what we have right this second. Um, so a few thoughts on, on asking good questions. Any feedback, any Questions? Any anybody want to disagree with that? I'm happy. I'm happy for dissenting voices. Yeah, keep them. Keep them coming. You, you two, and Michael. You're the only ones that are going to ask questions tonight. Yeah. Hey, hey, Michael. My up. I mean, I don't like to involve other people in decision-making and I don't like to ask other people questions because yeah. I don't want their opinion on it. So that might be a personal problem. There you go. But, okay, well, here's the thing though. That might not be an issue depending yeah. on what line of work you're in. So some people, their organization... Um, they're a single sole proprietor. They don't answer to a board. They don't answer to stockholders, shareholders, and they can make decisions. And they don't, they're not trying to lead 400 employees through something. Um, so like in your situation, it, with your business, it's a little different than it was if you're trying to get buy-in from eight different departments. And right. So I, it's not all bad. It just depends on where you're at and what you're trying to do. Um, so... Can you speak to, if you're in the, because um, I do, I mean, I have business partners, so mm -hmm. I, I do, cons you know, try to consult with them before making any choices. How do you handle adversity in those situations? Say somebody just, you're just not getting anywhere. <laughs> that is such a broad question. <laughs> Coming next month on leadership <laughs> night. Um, I mean, it depends. Are they your peer or are they somebody you're leading? A peer. And yeah. it's not even speaking from personal experience. I yeah. guess it's just you're saying, like, in my situation, I have an equal partner. So I guess if I want change and, and yeah. you didn't. Yeah. You've got to have equal buy-in or you're not going to be able to lead, make the change. But I think even in that situation, if you're trying to, if you're trying to, if I can say it this way, lead your peer, it still comes back to um, asking the right questions, um, Here's the thing, uh, this, might, this might be an oversimplification. We don't crave things we've never had before. Like, I've never once been like, man, I want some rhubarb pie. Do you know why? Because I've never had rhubarb pie. I might think it's delicious, but I've never craved it before because I've never had it. And so the reality is uh, we, we, we like what we know and we push back on what we don't know. And so... Uh, Henry Ford said one time, if I would have given people what they wanted, I would have given them a faster horse. Um, and so sometimes it's helping see that the preferred future 
is better. And it, it might be a long process with a peer. You know, with subordinates, you can almost, I mean, you can do it by force. It's not always advisable. But with a peer, it takes a lot of like working together and talking and sharing. And, and so it might just be a long-term investment in leading those kind of changes. I will say that I make better, I, I do know that I make better decisions when I consult with my peers. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I love about that is you're like, I don't ever consult. I make my own decisions all the time, but I also acknowledge that my decisions are way better when I do. It's like, okay. No, that's all true. I've asked them to come here though, so I'm sure they're not listening. <laughs> I, I think we've had a real breakthrough tonight, Katie. Yeah, no, so. I, I've learned, like, I do not like to ask other people's opinion. I don't like to consult with my peers, but I make yeah. far better decisions after doing so. A hundred percent. I'm the pastor of this church. I don't like asking people's opinions. I want to do what I want to do. But it's way better when I ask people's opinions. So I, yeah, I totally get that. Um, anything else? Questions, comments, feedback? Practical application to situations like that? Okay. Let me jump into number three. So after you ask good questions, um, you've got to listen to and value the responses. Um, I know I've worked at places where I was asked questions and then I could tell they didn't really care what the answers were. They just did it so they could say, well, we asked for your feedback. It was like, yeah, but you didn't do anything with the feedback. Um, and I, I do know that, um, oh man, I, I don't know if anything is more demoralizing um, as an employee or as someone who's being led than a leader who solicits feedback and then ignores feedback. Um, that just feels demoralizing. It feels devaluing. And who really cares? Do they really care? And so the important thing for us as leaders to do is to solicit feedback and then value it and go, okay, now we might not change the direction of our organization based on your feedback, but I want you to, I want you to know your feedback matters. Um, One of the things that's important to do, I think responses, um, responding to feedback, especially feedback you don't like, is important because we don't want to, like Katie illustrated. Uh, we don't want people to say, I don't like your idea. Uh, I don't like that we're gonna do this. I don't like that we're doing it this way. Um, we want everybody to affirm us. And so when somebody goes, hey, I think we're doing it the wrong way, it's easy for us to dismiss that. Um, but... That's where I know for myself, it's more important for me to lean in in those moments and ask questions again, like, um, hey, okay, I'm not sure I understand your point of view. Would you, would you help me understand that? Help me understand what you're trying to say when you say, you know, and repeat it back to them. And, and I found that that will do a couple things. Because my initial response is to take things personally because I'm a human being. So when somebody says, I don't like your idea, what I hear is, we hate your guts. Like, that's what I hear, right? And so I have to take a deep breath and take a step back and go, okay, no, really help me understand what you're trying to say. Um, and that gives me an opportunity to like settle down and go, oh, okay, here's what they're really getting at. Um, because then that helps them feel valued and helps me uh, process what they're saying a little differently. Um, yeah, when I said value... Um, do your best to find solutions that show your opposition that you're looking out for them too. It's easy to go, hey, these people don't matter because they're just in the way. They're obstacles to us doing what we wanna do. But if we understand they're an important part of our organization, um, they're not evil, they're not bad, they just don't see things quite the way I do, then it, it helps us value their points of view and perspective. Um, I've, I've said this before, and, and I probably have said it in here. One of the things I, I had to do in leading our congregation was there were people that literally built this building. This building we're in tonight, there are people that built it with their own hands that are part of our church. Uh, because when they built this building, our church didn't have the money to hire contractors and general contractors and subs and all those kind of things. And Bob was around for that. You remember this. Uh, Bob, Bob was part of the history. So like they didn't have the money to hire, so they had to do it themselves and it was a long process. So when it came time for us to build um, the kids and youth wing and, and when we built um, and renovated Blairsville, I had some people that said, hey, we can save a lot of money if we do it ourselves. And I, I told them, I appreciate that, but we don't have time 
to take two years to build something. We need to do it quicker. We've got the money, we don't have the time. Back then we had the time, we didn't have the money. Now it's different. And, and so one of the things I had to do is help them understand your position is still valuable. Just because you're not building the building, your position is still valuable. Um, and I might've said this from stage um, not too long ago, but what, one of the things I had to tell some of those folks is you're still valuable and important part of our organization. We just don't need you to build the building like we did before. Now we need you in a different kind of role. Uh, and I equated it to this idea, like when my daughter, Abby, she's a sophomore in college, when she was a baby, I had to take care of her. I had to feed her, I had to change her. We had to do everything for her. Now I don't have to feed her and change her and t- do everything for her. But she still calls me sometimes and she's like, hey dad, what do I do about? But I'm not feeding her. She can do that herself now. So she needs me, but my role has changed and she needs me differently than she did when she was an infant. And so that's one of the things I've tried to share with people in our church. Like, hey, if you've been here a long time, we need you differently than we did 20 years ago. We need you, but it just looks different. And that's hard for some people, but it's important for us to, to value them and say, hey, your contributions, your part is still really important. Um, I'll say this too. When you hear responses, uh, when you invite solicit feedback and people give feedback and it's not the feedback you'd like to hear, uh, I want you to understand this. Loud doesn't mean large. So just because there's a loud group of people who don't like what you're doing doesn't mean it's a big group of people. Uh, A lot of times the loudest people are the smallest minority. Um, Typically, in my experience, it's about one or 2% of your organization doesn't like you very much. And that's about it but one or 2% might as well be a, a, a 80% is what it feels like if they are a loud vocal minority. Um, so yeah, listen and value the responses. Thoughts or feedback on that? Questions? Mark, you're really quiet tonight too. Usually you're a wealth of questions and knowledge and feedback. All right. Haven't heard from Bob tonight either. You guys. <laughs> it's unparalleled, unsurpassed. Okay. Okay. Uh, what are some markers we can look for to help us identify bad leaps of faith coming from the risk-taking side of the distribution? Bad. Okay. It's coming from this end over here? Yes. Um... Well, okay, so if you're on this end, one of the things you have to recognize is that you are more prone to taking risks, and that's where it's probably important to include some people who are further down this way from time to time to help, help you go, oh, whoa, 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 maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Um, but I don't know if there's a general rule for like, this would be risky, this would not be risky. But I think soliciting feedback from people you know and trust is important. Um, I would say never, I mean, sounds like I'm endorsing gambling, which I am not, but never risk more than you can afford to lose. Um, So, you know, in in our risk taking, never risk something more than you could lose. Uh, And my one caveat would be, I feel like that's something God asks us to do as believers a lot is, is risk more than we think we can lose. Uh, and that's a different equation entirely when we feel like God is speaking to us to do something or he's asking us to step out in faith. But just generally speaking, I would say, um, don't be so prone to risk that you end up doing something really stupid. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's too vague, but that's the best I got. Anybody else have thoughts on that? General rules on risk? are so quiet. It's because the college kids are here. It's okay. Uh, Number, oh, you got one, CJ? Before we get to number four, CJ. So uh, when you talk about that loud majority versus, uh, I mean, the loud vocal people versus it actually being a majority, are you suggesting we ignore those people? I mean, sometimes, (laughs) I mean, honestly, sometimes you have to. Um, Here, okay, in, in the church's context, this is where we engage Biblically, where like one of our core values is uh, healthy relationships. We're gonna love sacrificially and resolve conflict biblically. And so that's something I attempt to do, I, I want to do. But I will tell you, I got, um, um, 
I, I got some great feedback from one of my mentors, Jim Hennessy. I was talking to him about a situation and I was like, hey, how should I deal with this? Because there was some conflict that had arisen. And he said, is this somebody you want to run with or not? Like, is this somebody that you want to be on your team or no? Do you feel like, and I said, I think so. And he was like, okay, then go, go work to resolve it. Go Matthew 18, go sit down and have conversation over coffee, bring it, you know, whatever it is. But one of the things he said was, and usually we don't get this spiritual on leadership night, but one of the things he said is when um, during the crucifixion, you know, from the time he was betrayed to the time he died, Jesus, um, Jesus faced a number of people that were in opposition to him, a number of accusers. And he said he handled all the accusers differently depending on who they were. And I think that's where we've got to use discernment on, hey, how am I going to handle these accusers? Are these people that they're accusing, but they're accusing out of the, maybe the right motivation, but the wrong heart, you know what I mean? Or are they, are they out to get me? Are they just trying to stop the organization, stop the vision, whatever it is? So I think we just have to use some discernment there. Does that make sense? Good question though. So Mel, sometimes when you ask for input, people give gems. Mm-hmm. It's really good stuff. And sometimes when you ask for input, they say things that are just way whacked out. Yeah, they do. So how do you personally still value their input when their input is like out in left field? Um, that's where I would probably shift to them personally. Where I, instead of saying, man, that was such a great idea when everybody in the room knows it was a horrible idea. That's probably where I would shift it to, man, I so appreciate you being a part of this group. Thank you for being part of this team. You know, um, I appreciate, I appreciate who you are. I appreciate what you do and your value to this organization is so, you know, it would be like that. Cause hopefully that would be the truth, but, um, but I would probably shift it. And a lot of times if we're honest, uh, most people I don't think are so unaware that when they say something really dumb, they think it was brilliant. I think a lot of times people get stuck in a moment and they feel like they've got to contribute. And so they throw something out. And usually if it's dumb, they know it's dumb. And so you don't have to be like, wow, that's a brilliant idea. Let's collaborate on this for a little bit. I think you can, okay, you know what? That's something to consider. I appreciate that. Or, you know, you know what? I don't know if that's quite the right direction, but man, I appreciate your feedback. Thank you so much. You know, I think you can do something with like that without it being feeling like I'm handcuffed to, explore this for the next, next half hour. That's normally how I would handle it. Because again, I've seen some people in, in groups that threw some things out and if, <laughs> if they would have been honest, they would have just been like, forget it, never mind." Because they knew as soon as they said it, like, oh no, like, oh. So that's a good question though. Okay, let me jump into number four. Number four, focus on solutions, not the opposition. And when you're being opposed, when people don't like what you have to say, don't like your plans, don't like what you have to do, uh, it's easy to focus on them, especially when it's that vocal minority. Um, but focus on the solutions instead of the opposition. Uh, drama, because I love drama. My staff knows, man, I, there's nothing I hate more in this world than drama. But drama can shade the facts. So when there's drama, it's easy to, to see things in a, in a cloudy kind of way. Uh, and we end up making questionable decisions when we're influenced by keeping opponents happy. So if all we're trying to do is keep the opponents at bay, you know, keep the, 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 the pagans from storming the castle, then we're in trouble. Um, and so we have to focus on the solutions more than just the emotion and the drama and how can I keep these people from, from you know, a coup attempt. Um, and so a couple of questions I would ask uh, in order to help regain focus is, what is our desired outcome? What do we want to happen? Um, and then the second question would be, how are we going to get it done? And that sounds really basic, but it is really basic. And sometimes you just gotta get back to basics when things are complicated. Um, and so clarify, what is our desired outcome? As a church, it's amazing. Every church in America, if you ask them what they're about, they're gonna have some variation of, we wanna win the lost and disciple people for Christ or something like that. So all of, all of their vision would be the same. All of their, um, their goals, their desired outcomes would basically be the same. And people aren't gonna get sideways about your desired outcomes. So if, if you're in a meeting and they're like, what's our desired outcome? Well, our desired outcome is to uh, double profits in the next quarter. Everybody's gonna be like, dang, that's great. Let's double profits in the next quarter. 
where people get sideways is the next part. How are we gonna get that done? Because that's where people go, whoa, 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 wait a second. And this is where churches across the country, we can agree on, hey, we wanna win the lost and disciple them for Jesus. But then people get sideways over how are we gonna do that? Um, people were excited about, we're gonna reach lost people, but then when we tell them how we're gonna do it, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because then they're going, how does this affect me? How is this gonna impact me? And if we get a bunch of people in here, I might not get my seat or whatever it might be, right? So people are going, this is about me. Um, and so just understand that's gonna happen. Um, when you ask these questions, there's gonna be largely a lot of resolution on the first and it's gonna get a little hazy on the second. And that's where, um, that's where you're gonna have to lead with conviction when it comes to that part. I will say this, uh, incremental change leads to incremental results. So sometimes we're tempted to go, okay, we wanted to take this big leap, but we have these opponents that don't want us to, so we're just gonna take this little step. And that's fine if you're okay with incremental results. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of organizations need a big change and we settle for a small change because we just don't wanna make people unhappy and we're trying to keep everybody um, in the same place. So I would encourage you, uh, focus on solutions, not on the opposition. Comments, questions? And we can take some more time to unpack this after the, the last one. I got one more after that. But questions, comments, concerns? Let me jump into number five. Number five, this one's really easy. Stay positive. Uh, it's hard to stay positive when you've got people sending you hate mail, when you've got people trashing you in the office, when they're having the meeting after the meeting and you walk up and they hey. Like, it's hard to stay positive because you just want to throw a punch somebody. Uh, let's be honest, right? Um, but you can't, you stay positive, uh, stay focused on the things that are really important. Um, normally resistant isn't, resistance isn't personal. They're not out to get you. They don't hate you. They're thinking about themselves. Well, this is gonna impact me and it's gonna make me uncomfortable. Then this is something I don't wanna do. Um, and the reality is most people don't crave change like leaders do. Leaders crave change because leaders see the results of the change. It's easier for a leader to see the good that's gonna come from the change than it is for a lot of people in the organization. Uh, but the fear of opposition will derail more leaders than the actual opposition will. Just being afraid of what are people gonna say? What are they gonna think if we do this? And I don't know if I've got the support and I don't know if I should. That's derailed so many good plans um, just because leaders were afraid of what people might say. And so I would encourage you, Fear of opposition is, is way worse than the actual opposition most of the time. All right, that's what I got. Let's unpack this a little bit. Let's talk about it a little bit. Uh, what does that look like in your organizations? And I know we've got a number of different organizations represented in the room. Um, how, does, how do you lead change in your organization when there's opposition? What does that look like? I know how Katie Thomas leads change in her organization. She just lays down the hammer. Here's what we're doing, people, whether you like it or not. Like one of the things that I've had to do whenever I'm thinking about doing something that I know that uh, it's gonna take a little while for people to see the value in is ask myself if I see the value in it myself to begin with and if right. I can sell myself on it and if I can articulate the future that way, then I just have to be okay with the fact that you know, I think sometimes people want to go into a room and pitch their idea and immediately have full support and maybe investment and all of that stuff. And sometimes what it takes is to show, uh, okay, I believe in this idea. I think it's going to work. I'm going to carry it out whether you're with me or not. And then once you show that boldness and they see that you're willing to spearhead it and you're willing to lead it and mm -hmm. maybe they don't have to take on an additional workload to see it through, uh, that they're much more um, interested in getting behind it. For sure. Okay, so back to these groups. Um, one of the hallmarks of both of these, the early majority and the late majority, is they are waiting for the group in front of them 
to make the decision. So the early majority will come to their decision. They will buy into something when they see this group do it. When this group does it, then it becomes acceptable for this group. Uh, when this group does it fully, th- there are enough peers between these two groups that the late adopters go, okay, the normal people have it. It's not just rich people. It's not just the elite. Normal people are doing this now, and that's when this group does it. And so what you're saying, I think, is 100% true. I think when, when there's proof of concept it, it makes it easier. It's less risky, right? When you go, hey, we've done this, it works. People go, oh yeah, why wouldn't we do that? Um, but even in, even in your organization, the more wins you have, the more, the more times you've been successful, the easier it is for people to go, yeah, I'll take a risk on that. You know, we'll go out there and let you do something crazy because you've had this string of successes. So yeah, I think the mistake sometimes people make is they might have a really good idea that actually is a good idea, yeah. and they think that the merit of the idea is enough to for people to buy in, when really, that's only like half the battle. Yeah, you yeah. might have a good idea, but if you're not good enough to carry that idea to execute out, it, they're yeah. not going to come on. And so you have to either have like demonstrable wins behind you, or <laughs> you have to go out and just win yeah. anyway, and then they'll see that, okay, well, it is a good idea, and he also is able to carry it out. You, one of my least favorite things as a leader, is when somebody brings me a good idea that they want to do that they can't execute. That is painful. Uh, and I've had that a number of times through the years that somebody's like, hey, we oughta, and I feel I'm supposed to, let's go. It's like, oh, God, oh, I want to, but I can't. And it's hard, but oh, man. So yeah, that stuff stinks. But yeah, if you can prove it and just work it out, it's, yeah. That proof of concept is huge. That's good, Michael. What else? This isn't necessarily something I do, but something I see in our organization is that the first level people that hear the idea for change, you've had to like earn to be in that space. Uh And so you're more excited to to hear that the change is coming or could happen or they value your your input. And then by the time it gets to the the middle half of the Mm -hmm. company, like all those people are so excited. So that's kind of how I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's not, it's not, um, oh gosh, we live in a world that wants everything to be even. Um, and it's, it's, that's more merit-based. Like, hey, you've earned the right to hear this information first. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. It just, if you're, if you're the, one of the people hearing it with everybody else, it might stink. But part of me feels like, well, that should be motivation. Go, yeah. go earn your way into the other group so you can hear about it first. And, so. there, and if there is pushback, it's from a much smaller group. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't even make it, to yeah. the, which is obvious. And you're going to say, that's a great comment, Christy. Um, <laughs> that's a great comment, did, Christy. Thank you. I feel a little attacked by how you were explaining to Bob earlier. <laughs> I'm sorry. yeah sorry i just i'm giving away all my secrets sorry katie Katie, i appreciate i appreciate you though (laughs) have i ever told you how much i love your kids katie i just oh god yeah bob go ahead i think you've said those things to me too mal (laughs) um two two thoughts quickly one is i i really think and you could, I would think you could almost add it to one of your points is what Michael said about your track record of change. Mm-hmm. That if people are going to buy in on something big, they really need to have the confidence that there's some sort of a history there. Yeah. That you have implemented change and you've implemented it well. I think yeah. You're going to get large scale buy in. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's one of the reasons when we launched Blairsville, I told our leaders, I was like, we've got to launch it well. We we can't whiff on this one because if we don't do it well, we're never doing another one. So if we're ever going to get one right, this is the one. We're going to get this one right. Um, and I think you're right. I think that that earns you the right to take risks and it makes it easier for people to buy into that for sure. Yeah, that's good. Uh, the other thought is I've, I've been involved in church settings where there was kind of the idea that we should be able to do this unanimously because we're all the family of God. Yeah. And I don't think that that's realistic. I think it ends up becoming leadership by opposition. You end up Mm -hmm. having the people with the louder voices, the small majority, keep you from going anywhere 
rather than being able to forge ahead. So I, I just think sometimes we've got to adjust our expectations. You know, mm -hmm. in an ideal world, we get complete buy-in. Everybody yeah. wants to go with us. Mm -hmm. But realistically, that's not going to happen all the time. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and again, every, every organization in this room is different as far as how you're run, shareholders and nonprofits and all kinds of things. But yeah, you're never going to have 100% buy-in, but we want it. I mean, some of it comes back to the just my need to be liked by people. Like, I want everyone to approve of what we're doing. And so when somebody says, you stink at that, it's like, no, I don't. Like, mm, like I want to prove them wrong, right? And so, um, oh, I could, well, th there's, sociologists will talk about the level of disagreeableness being different between men and women. Men tend to be more disagreeable than women. Men, women tend to be a, more agreeable, um, which just means a lot of times men are more opposed, like they're more vocal about pushing back. But the reality is even men who have a high level of, of, of disagreeableness, like, like I tend to, I still want people to like me. I still want people to approve. And so we all battle that. But yeah, you're exactly right though. If we're not careful, the vocal minority can take over organizations pretty easily. And that's why, because we all want, people to like us so it's good what else as a risk taker yourself uh, what are some ways that you prepare in advance for unforeseen negative consequences to a decision um i try to have as many conversations before before a big decision is public um, I want to answer, I want to have every hard conversation before we have a public conversation um, because I feel like the more of those hard conversations I can have over coffee or sitting in my office, it's going to help me navigate those because they're going to come out at some point, you know. So it's almost like, um, so in, in reporting, like um, journalists, if they're working on a big story, <clears throat> they might have what they call a red team. And the red team is people who don't know any of the information about the story and they're presented the story and then they just punch holes in the story. They just pick it apart. And, and you almost need a red team on big things to be able to get, just speak to stuff and go, nope, nope, that, that doesn't work. And I would never want that so that you can go, okay, that makes sense. Let me think through that again. Does that make sense? Um, so I really, when it comes to big stuff, I want I want that feedback as much as I can so that we can get it fixed before we go public with something. I did not expect to mention red teams tonight, but there you go. Got a couple more minutes. We got time for another question or comment or feedback or whatever. So when you're doing that at the beginning, trying to kind of figure out people's uh, perspective so you can fix the stuff at the beginning, do you go to laggards for that? Because if laggards, you know you're going to have someone yeah. to talk to everybody. You ask. Typically, I won't. Um, what I will do, though, is I will, I'm, I will, I will wade further down here, but I, I typically won't go to the laggards and be like, give me your feedback. What I'll try to do is ask a broad enough group of these people what the, what the objections might be. Like, what are the things that I don't see? What are people going to say? And they, the, this group of people, they're smart enough to be able to go, here's what people aren't going to like about this. Or, hey, my dad is one of these people, and here's what he's going to hate about that. Great. Um, that helps me. So, yeah, normally I wouldn't. Yeah, That's just me. Good question. Have you met many people who are on the early side of the distribution who are just chronically make bad decisions and kind of masquerade <laughs> as risk takers? And if you do, how do you rein those people in? That's funny. Um, wow, that is a very specific question. No, I don't know that I have really um, because they're going to weed themselves out. If they are risk taking and... And you and I talked about this a little bit before. Um, oh, I think one of the theories is the, the, the risk takers are chronic risk takers because they're resilient. So they can take a risk and if they fail, they're gonna bounce back and take another risk. Uh, but one of the reason people end up down here is because they're not resilient. 
Uh, and so they take a risk and fail, and that's it. And so they're like, I learned my lesson, I'm never taking another risk. Um, and so there's application for that in relationships, in business, in economics, all kinds of things. So I think they weed themselves out. If they take a risk and they're not resilient enough to keep bouncing back, they're not gonna, they're not gonna stay resilient. They're gonna end up, they're gonna end up being a laggard because at some point they just go, I can't take any more risks. I can't do it. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's good. It's a good question. 7.59. I mean, it can, we got time for a short one if we got a short one. That's okay. Okay, I'm gonna pray and, um, and we'll close out online. And if you guys have questions or just wanna talk amongst yourselves or whatever, I'm cool with that. We can stick around as long as you'd like. Um, but let me pray and we'll get out of here. God, thanks so much. For, um, for helping us, for growing us. And Lord, we know that all leadership ultimately comes from you. So God, I pray that you would help us, stretch us, grow us, help us to become the leaders you want us to be. I pray that uh, the people we lead would be influenced in a positive way and uh, that we would make an impact in this world. And I pray that you would just use us to those ends. So God, have your way with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.